This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Discover, something brighter. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Cynthia Germanata launched the Born This Way Foundation with her daughter, Lady Gaga, in 2012. She joins the Post to talk about the mental health strain on young people during the pandemic and the latest research from the foundation. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today, we're launching a new series called The Optimist, featuring conversations that inspire and inform at a moment when the pandemic is testing so very many of us. I'm delighted to introduce my inaugural guest. This is Cynthia Gemanata. She's the president and co-founder of the Born This Way Foundation. A very warm welcome to you, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you. We're just delighted. Cynthia, I think most people know Born with the, the Born This Way song by your daughter, Lady Gaga. And I have to say, I had great fun watching it last night on Carpool Karaoke. But many people probably don't know about the foundation. Could you tell us the inaugural story, how you started it and what it meant to you? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, our story of the foundation, it, it's a very personal one because it's based on lived experience from my daughter. Uh, she developed mental health issues anxiety and depression very severely in middle school. And as a result, uh, you know, when she began sharing her story, other young people started to feel inspired and empowered to change their lives. So this was really born out of her struggles and uh, the fact that she turned her life around. It wasn't easy. Uh, it was done with a lot of internal strength and support but she wants other young people to know that they can turn their lives around, that they can be seen and heard and better equipped to deal with their struggles than she was. Uh, so our mission is one that's very aspirational in tone, very preventive in nature. We try to equip young people as early as possible to deal with their mental health struggles and to be kind. And our work really lies at the intersection of kindness and mental health. So every day uh, we have three lofty goals. Uh, one is to make kindness cool, to validate the emotions of young people everywhere, and to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health. You mentioned middle school, and I don't think of that as a time of kindness. Um, tell me about the importance of kindness in that stage of life and how you try and inculcate it in kids. Yeah, well, um, Unfortunately, 50% of mental health issues develop by the age of 14. So we're right in that, you know, that pocket of middle school. And kindness can truly be a key to, to helping turn that around. It's a very impressionable age. You know, young people are finding their way. Uh, they're stepping out. They're starting to change classrooms and mingle with other students and it's a time of judgment. And unfortunately, if I speak to my daughter's story, she was very unique and that wasn't always appreciated by her peers. And she experienced a, a lot of mean-spirited things, you know, isolation, uh, you know, not being invited to, to parties and, and many, many other things that caused her to develop this. So uh, kindness is really the key. Uh, young people who report being in kind environments, and we know this from our research, are generally mentally healthier. They have higher mental health indicator scores. And it can be as simple as teachers saying hello to students uh, by their first name in school. So there are many ways to instill kindness and create an environment 
uh, that's not as destructive for young people. You mentioned making kindness cool. How do you do that? It just those two things don't necessarily fit together in my mind, and I'd love to hear. Well, you know, we do it by uh, giving young people a safe environment and the platform to use their voice. Uh, they more than anyone are, you know, I think people often think of young people as this disengaged and apathetic generation. And we know very differently because we work with them every day that they're very aspirational and they're very kind and they just need to share that. So we've created a number of programs. Uh, one, one in fact is called Channel Kindness, which started as a digital platform for young people to share stories of courage bravery and resilience in their communities. They're often not depicted that way. And this, this platform gives them a voice. And we've seen incredible acts of kindness uh, and bravery, so much so uh, that we started sharing it and realized that we should share it with the world. And it's now become a book of 51, very um, aspirational and diverse stories of, of kindness in communities uh, around, around the United States. Um, and around the world. So it, it, it's, it's primarily from giving them a platform uh, to share uh, the, the wonderful acts of kindness that they're doing in their communities. And tell me about the importance of integrating kindness into the workplace, another part of our lives, but such an important one. What are the benefits for employers and of course for employees too? So we realized that, you know, my daughter's uh, fans, our supporters and followers at the foundation were entering the workforce and we're wondering what does that look like uh, in the workforce? Are they taking kindness with them? And we partnered with the Chamber of Kindness, uh, sorry, we partnered with the Chamber of Commerce uh, on a campaign called the business of kindness, looking at what it does look like in the workforce. And uh, through many different campaigns, studies, and months later, realized that the benefits do fall to the bottom line in areas such as employee uh, absenteeism, uh, their productivity, and their overall mental health in the workforce. You um, have a very uh, forceful president, presence on Twitter as um, with the hashtag T with Mrs. G that I've been looking at. And you have this wonderful ability to connect with people, but also a huge responsibility. How do you make sure that the messages you give there are science-based and ones that people can take on into their lives? Well, our work, I mentioned, it was very important to my daughter and I from the outset of the foundation that our work be grounded in research. So all of our programs are informed by research. So what I share, most of what I share is science-based and based on that research. Now, of course, during the pandemic, I've leaned into my own vulnerabilities and shared some of my own struggles as well. Uh, but for example, one of the things that I've shared that we know from our research is when a young person is struggling, whether that's a mental health or a substance abuse crisis, they prefer to speak to a peer rather than adult, uh, yet peers are not often very equipped to talk to them. So that has informed a couple of our programs around peer-to-peer -peer education and mental health education. Uh, a platform called bethere.org that helps young people learn how to have the right conversations about mental health, ask the right questions, and get somebody who's struggling connected to somebody who's, who can help them. Teen Mental Health First Aid is a campaign that we partnered with the National Council for Behavioral Health. And it's a, a training, uh, a school-based education program 
that helps young people learn to recognize and respond to somebody in a mental health crisis. So um, just about everything that we do is informed by research and our programs develop um, around those key tenants. We call ourselves the gap finders because we look for areas uh, where young people need support. Um, fortunately, nine out of 10 young people value and prioritize their mental health. But one of the greatest barriers is, is that they don't know where to go. So that's another area where we spend a great deal of time is, is connecting them to local community-based resources so that they can get the proper support. This is also inspiring to hear, and I listened to it thinking about the past year and how the pandemic has exacerbated um, the problems you're talking about. And really, many experts say the whole country is going through a mental health crisis. How has the pandemic changed the foundation's work? And how are you reaching out to people now who seem to be suffering so much from isolation? You know, unfortunately, the pandemic, it, it has profoundly affected everyone, um, in particular young people. I refer to this as the second pandemic, uh, a mental health pandemic. And I've heard so many teachers, uh, for example, talking about the long-term effects of trauma, the long-term effects of learning loss. Uh, one of the recent studies that we conducted with CHEG showed that over 50% of young people are very worried about their mental health going back to school, a third have experienced depression, and a quarter know somebody with suicidal ideation. So this is very alarming to us at the foundation. Um, the good news is a lot of our work is digital. So we were poised to have these really urgent and important conversations with young people. However, if you look at something like suicide, which has you know, raised it at an alarming rate, we have adjusted um, our work to step up to that um, particular cause. And it was informed by a CDC study last summer that showed that one in four young people had experienced suicide ideation or thoughts of suicide over a 30-day period last summer. And this caused us to develop a campaign called Please Stay. Um, it's hashtag Please Stay at pleasestay.us. And it's based on two things. The first is finding an anchor in your life. And uh, we partnered with our friends at Find Your Anchor um, who have an incredible suicide prevention tool that um, challenges you to find an anchor, whether that's friends and family, 30 seconds of breathing, your favorite food, whatever brings you joy and grounds you during this time. So one is to find your anchor. And the second is to sign a pledge that you will stay with us. It's a pledge, I've signed it myself. It's a pledge that you can print, that you can share with other young people. And, and the basic premise is that you will stay with us. And there's a number of um, tools as well uh, at pleasestay.us, uh, education about suicide, um, tips of how to find your anchor. Uh, there's a deck of cards that has 52 reasons why you should stay here with us. And it's a very creative and aspirational way. The founder, Ali Borowski, is a four-time suicide survivor herself, and I am so in awe of her bravery and courage and her willingness to help other young people um, avoid what she was able to do at, at such a young age. These are such important messages. The U.S. has for a long time failed to prioritize mental health. Do you think now, given the trauma the country has been through, President Biden should appoint a mental health czar or take other steps to prioritize mental health? 
I think any time that we have the opportunity to do that, we should. Um, look, I, we all understand the urgency of the pandemic. I mean, this may be the only time in history that the entire world is working to solve the same problem. That said, a lot of our funds are being diverted to do that. And because I, you know, I believe, and we strongly believe at the foundation that we are in that second pandemic, and President Biden has acknowledged that himself in mental health, um, that yes, any way that we can, we should allocate funds toward that. I think that um, the government, you know, should be looking at ways um, to do that and to expand that um, in communities and in schools as well. And I also feel very strongly that that we'll start succeeding when we treat mental health as we do physical health, when you can go to your doctor and have a physical exam and you have conversations about your mental health as well. Which takes me to a question about employers. I mean, most health insurance comes through employers and we know that physical health gets better coverage than mental health. What can employers do to try and push this very key uh, element of, of our needs forward? Well, there's fortunately, we're seeing an uptick in telehealth services. Uh, early on in the pandemic, it was up over 40%. So I think that that's an easy lift for employers. Um, I think also for employers to have affinity groups uh, within their organization. And most importantly, we know from our research that um, at least a third of young people that work in the corporate world are not aware of the services that their companies do have. So I think for employers to, to share what is available to those employees could go a long way. And there's many wonderful community-based uh, resources uh, that employers can post. I mentioned earlier that one of the biggest barriers for young people getting help is they don't know where to go. So anything that employers, uh, teachers, parents, all of us can do to share those resources will be very helpful to young people. So one of the challenges I've noticed in reporting on the pandemic over the past year is how often I go to experts and they say, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And we report that, but now I think we're in a stage of we don't know uh, whether the pandemic will continue, when it will stop, whether the variants might affect us. How does uncertainty affect kids in particular and the lack of ability to take control of their environment? It affects them in a very big way. In fact, I one of my conversations on my tea time was about just that, that, you know, we're in a time, what I call a time of firsts, certainly a first for many young people. And, you know, the discipline of their lives has been taken away from them. The, the connectivity of their lives has, has been taken away from them. And they're sitting under these clouds of uncertainty and lack of control and it affects them very, very deeply. So um, we've been doing all that we can to help instill uh, some sense of discipline back into their lives and ground them. Uh, everything from them writing letters to frontline workers. Uh, I've, we've seen young people rise up and do grocery shopping for their neighbors. There are many activities that young people are engaging in to try to help them feel that sense of control. And we're certainly urging them to stay connected. We've we flip the, uh, the conversation about uh, social distancing. We call it physical distancing while remaining socially connected. It's incredibly right. important that we maintain those connections now. You also talk a lot about the importance of storytelling in your work. Can you tell me about the, how that works and the kind of stories you're hearing now? 
Yes, so uh, storytelling, we actually learned the power of storytelling from my daughter. I mean, I'm so proud of her. When she decided to share her story with the world, she would do it on stage. I didn't quite understand it as a parent, but I, I learned to see that she was healing, young people were healing, and they were feeling inspired and empowered. They were saying, Gaga, you know, how, how did you overcome, you know, these issues? So her sharing her story helped other young people share their own and realize they're not alone. And uh, almost 10 years ago now, we started collecting those stories and curating them. And we have uh, hundreds, if not thousands of stories now. And in 2017, realized that it was so important to young people, the healing power of storytelling, that we developed a digital platform called Channel Kindness. And it's just that. We, we train young people in how to tell their stories. Uh, we, we scaffold them with adult support. And, and they write uh, stories of resilience and bravery in their communities. And uh, you know, I, I can share one young woman recently wrote about uh, during the pandemic how she was feeling, you know, isolated and worried about pe people that, and young people in particular in mental health facilities and developed something called Solely Sunshine, where she invites people to go onto that site, write letters to young people in mental health facilities. She rewrites them in very color colorful and encouraging ways and sends them off. And we have hundreds of stories like this of young people that are rising to the occasion. So much so we decided to share it with the world in an, a new book uh, that's about a year old now called Channel Kindness Stories. It but this is mostly a hit song for young people because it's 51 that have, have written their own stories of, of kindness and resilience and you optimism. You, you mentioned that you didn't quite understand it when your daughter started sharing her story. And I think this is very key in this generation that that parents often don't understand the way kids communicate now, particularly on social media. Can you talk about how you address some of those things, the challenges, the intergenerational challenges, understanding how our kids are able to communicate, communicate in ways we weren't able to? I mean, this is something I personally struggled with were intergenerational differences. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in a, a time and a home where your emotions weren't really discussed. It was, I'll call it the time of true grit. I grew up in West Virginia and you just got on with it. So my, my behavior patterns were more along those lines. And, you know, I think as parents, we, we immediately go into protect and fix it mode, you know, with, with our children. So I had to really start to not just listen, but understand what my children were saying to me and validate their emotions and, and, you know, and learn that, that they were real, what they were experiencing was real. Um, with social media, it, it's another place, another venue um, for young people to go both I, I talk about using it wisely, the wise freedom of, of using social media because it can be used for good, which it should, um, but we also see a lot of harassment you know, online. But on a positive note, it's also a place of community for young people, especially if you look at at-risk communities, whether that's LGBTQ, um, African-American um, communities, um, AAPI are finding a sense of community and a source of comfort on social media. So we foster the wise use um, of social media at Born This Way Foundation.
Right, and of course we see young people watching movies together, but in separate places and communicating on social media in a way that would have been unheard of uh, when you and I were growing up. Yeah, it's a foreign language to us. We're having a little bit of trouble with your uh, your internet connection at the moment, but let's go on. We have lots of questions, as you can imagine, from our audience, and I'd like to read um, some of them to you. The first one comes from Dominique McLaren in Colorado, and we have to think a little bit about the trauma everybody has been going through in that state and beyond. Dominique McLaren asks, how do I give my middle schooler hope for the future and, still, and instill optimism in him when things seem so bad? This is such a, a great question, Dominique. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about optimism, and I think it has to be um, covered with a dose of reality as well. And I think that's the best thing that we can do for our children. You can be an optimist, uh, but you can also not be okay, you know, at certain points in, in time. And I think one of the things that young people struggle with is feeling that everything that happens to them is permanent. So I think, you know, any way that you can um, have conversations with the children in your life about trying to remember a time that was better to help them see that, they, that these are temporary situations and that they're not going to last forever will help them cope. I think, you know, trying to model conversations around kindness and empathy, I think focusing on um, their effort rather than their results to try to reduce the stress in their life and, and help them feel more optimistic are just, just a few of, of the tips that I can give. But um, we all need the optimism. The good news is I, I think it's, it's very contagious, um, but we also have to have the reality in that as well. That message of efforts rather than results resonates with me. Let me go to another question. This one is from Jean Blake in Massachusetts. She writes, your daughter seems so resilient and confident. How did you foster her resiliency growing up? That's a great question. Yeah, um, we fostered it. I, I think this is how we fostered it, by allowing her to explore. You know, we could see very clearly the differences between a passion and, and a hobby. So we allowed her to explore that. We allowed her to fail. Uh, we talked to her very candidly about failure and um, ensuring her that she would fail, that we're human beings, we're fallible, and this will happen. And what are some of the coping mechanisms for getting beyond that? Um, I will also say I did not get all of this right. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. I wish I had known the warning signs to look for for mental health issues. Uh, I do now, but I, I would encourage everyone to, to try to ed educate themselves around that. I think, you know, when young people are growing up, we, we think it's just normal teenage behavior, but there's some true warning signs that, that we can look for. I think being a parent is all about making mistakes. And, and another question, this one comes from Lawrence Massama in Georgia, who writes, technology can be helpful in times of social isolation, but do you see it doing more harm than good for kids during the pandemic? You've spoken a little bit about this, but maybe you can address that head on. Yeah, I have to say that I see it doing more good than I do harm. It has is really, uh, you know, just think about um, our school life and the fact that it has now become remote um, for children without technology. 
we would not have that capability for that to happen. Without technology, they wouldn't be able to maybe see and talk to their grandparents. Without technology, they wouldn't be able to, to, to maybe learn a new musical instrument. So I personally see it doing much more good uh, than I do harm. And I also feel it's up to us to try to to guide young people through that now. I also have, have empathy. I have empathy for parents that have become teachers that are working from home. So they're working double and triple duty, trying to figure all of these things out, but um, collectively um, we can do it. You talked about kids getting involved in grocery shopping for other people. And these, of course, are acts of altruism. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of doing things for other people as, uh, at the same time as looking after yourself. Where is the balance there? Well, the balance, I mean, we talk a lot about not only kindness and empathy and doing for others, but also self-care. And to, to me, therein lies the balance is, you know, the, the old uh, conversation about the glass being half full or empty. The glass has to be full, your own personal glass, before you can pour into somebody else's cup. And so, you know, trying to balance doing for others with self-care is something we encourage very strongly now and have a lot of tips about how to do that at, at bornthisway.foundation. Cynthia, what's the big lesson we should take away from this pandemic? What would you like to see as, as learning from it as we go ahead? I'd like to see us uh, learn resilience and learn optimism. Um, you know, I, I've seen people unfortunately now learning optimism and resilience out of necessity. It's a question of survival. And I, I think if we look at the collective and what we can do as a collective, what humanity can do together, I think is an incredible lesson for us to take away from this. And it's, and it's being done in so many incredible ways through acts of kindness. And through, I, I've seen people reach out more now than ever. We're tapping into those feelings of kindness and empathy because we all share this bond of the pandemic and we know what it's like. I don't think that there's any one person that's had an easy time of it. So in the collective, I think the resilience and, and the kindness that is coming about. And are you optimistic those lessons will last? I, I definitely am, you know, and I, I, the way I feel about optimism is it's, it, it helps you, if, if done the right way, it, it's not simply about wishful thinking optimism, but it's about understanding what's happening around you and then looking within you to see how you can affect change. And so to me, that is the biggest thing about optimism. I do think it's lasting if we look at it that way. I'm also not naive. I'm, you know, life is full of, of obstacles. Um, but I think if we try to look at it as temporary and continue to work together to affect change and overcome these things as we have been doing with the pandemic, I think it can be a resilience tool that can be everlasting. Cynthia, I think I have time for one last question and it's really about you. How do you practice self-care? What do you do for yourself to make sure that you can continue supporting the people around you? I've been doing a couple of things. Uh, one, I started doing more strongly during the pandemic, uh, which was leaning into my own vulnerabilities and talking about it. 
Um, I also, every morning I read um, an inspirational passage from the book. It could be anything that brings you joy, that grounds me for the day. And then I write in a gratitude journal three things that I'm grateful for, as well as lessons that I've learned during the pandemic. And it sounds like just an exercise, but when you start to read this body of work, um, it's very, very meaningful. And then secondly, I'm, I'm a huge believer in movement. Uh, so whether that's power walking in the park, you know, taking a, a Zoom ballet lesson, you know, anything I can do to, to not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually keep myself grounded. So I've been turning to that, you know, there's fits and starts with it, but, um, but it's been very helpful, very helpful guide. I think we all know those fits and starts, but those are great words of wisdom. Cynthia Germanata, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Francis, for having me. Honored. We were delighted. A reminder that you can sign up for the Washington Post Optimist newsletter to get stories of kindness, resilience, and the best among us delivered to your inbox every Wednesday and Sunday. Go to wapo.st slash optimist newsletter. You can see it there on your screen. And we have lots more in store for you. Tonight at 5.30 Eastern, Senator Chris Murphy will be here, along with NBA star Draymond Green. Don't miss it. It'll be a great show. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.